Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 61. This week, we talked to Matt Veloso about machine learning, Project Oxford, and twinsornot.net. 34 CSS puns, and an API for Star Wars. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Hey, Carl. This week we have Matt Veloso. He is a random developer from Microsoft that built a cool viral site. <laughs> Welcome, Matt. Wow. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love that intro. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, I, I we discussed about how to introduce myself. I couldn't think about anything better to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that works. That sounds really good. Uh, so we're really looking forward to uh, talking to you. But first, let's get a couple things out of the way. So uh, feedback, what do we got, Carl? Yes, uh, this week's uh, feedback that we're highlighting and winner of the Infragistics Ultimate License is from, I'm going to mess this up, Botha Vanderviver. And he says... That looks correct. And he says, hi, guys. Great job with the podcast. Love your talk on 3D with Renee. Shout out all the way from sunny South Africa. And we had talked about uh, Africa last week. Yes, we did. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's exciting finding out all the different places that people listen to us from. And, you know, it's kind of amazing that the Internet opens our little worlds from northeast Wisconsin all the way around the world. So it's yep. nice hearing feedback from everyone. Yep. And the latency there uh, shouldn't have affected the download. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, iTunes or Stitcher. We really love those iTunes reviews. Uh, they help spread the show and uh, it enters you in for a chance to win uh, the Infragistics Ultimate License every week. Yep. Oh, and you told me, too, that uh, since we're in TuneIn Radio, they have an Xbox app. So I'm going to get a picture and we're going to put that out there on Twitter. Yeah, that'll be cool seeing us on Xbox. MS Dev Show on Xbox. Very cool. Okay, let's jump into the news. Uh, so what is this one, Carl? We're talking about WebAssembly again. Do, do we... Do we actually understand it this time? So a, a lot more. So <laughs> I'm going to have three links in the show notes to this, but the most important one is that last one called FAC. Yep. So this really kind of breaks it down. Um, you know, from what we heard uh, or what I heard when I listened to the CPP cast with Rob Irving, they were really, uh, you know, led us to the most correct information out of anything I've seen online. So this is their fact from the WebAssembly GitHub page. And, um, Basically, the ASM.js team just couldn't get fast enough results. And so what they're proposing is a way to initially uh, compile C and C++ into bytecode that'll run anywhere, but eventually it'll be any language. So this is, okay. this is, this is really cool. It, um, you'll be able to write code that compiles natively, will be like 20 to 40 times faster than ASM.js JavaScript, and uh, you'll be able to call it from within your JavaScript. So this is just a, a really cool tool that you'll be able, or technology that you'll be able to push the binary to the client and just have it run wicked fast. Okay, very cool. It sounds kind of like Node.js too, where you know you're programming everything in JavaScript, but a lot of times under the hood, the things that you're using are actually written in C. Yeah. So like I said, this is really cool. It's still in its infancy, but I think it's kind of important. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Go check out these official links from uh, the actual websites and their GitHub pages. Excellent. Uh, next one, killing off Wasabi. So this one was very interesting to me because I've 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 obviously read all of, um, you know, Joel's stuff, Joel on software. And I remember reading about this and he, he had to continually defend this because basically Wasabi was um, it allowed them to uh, write in their code basically in one language. And then they would, I guess, transpile that into, into multiple output languages. 
Um, so like whenever .NET came out, they said, oh yeah, we just, uh, we created a new output and we could, we could create, you know, .NET assemblies from, uh, from our existing code. And that was a really, really weird approach. And so it sounds like, uh, it sounds like they're, they're dropping that approach. Yeah. And, and they go on to, you know, defend everything that they did do. And, you know, at the time, like a lot of things, right. you know, yeah, technical debt isn't always a negative word. It's just, you know, a carryover from what was best practice at the time. And they had a need to uh, want to write the language once and get, like uh, Jason said, those multiple outputs. Um, and over the years, especially now that Rosalind is available, they were able to completely remove you know, a good chunk of that legacy stuff and now just be able to uh, use .NET going forward. So this is a really cool history piece, um, especially as you compare, you know, what they've done to maybe what you're doing at work. Uh, you know, there are some really good software uh, lifecycle lessons to be learned here. Yeah. What what can you remove and replace with some newer uh, technology? Like, can you can you remove a whole bunch of things that you have to maintain? Or, and what was what was interesting about this was that the way that they sort of turned this off was they built an output instead of going to a .NET binary, it would output C sharp. So they basically compiled, you know, compiled it into C sharp files and then they just threw away like all of their stuff and they just committed to source control all the C sharp code, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that was really cool. So if you want to learn a little bit more how they did that, that's towards the end of the page there. And it's a really good read. Yeah. Uh, what do we got next? Why does Windows not recognize my USB device as the same device when I plug it into a different port? That is a good question. And uh, I've been wondering that a long time because I, uh, recently I've had uh, my Bluetooth dongle for my headset. I, I was traveling and I had it in one and then I put it in another USB port and I noticed that and I kind of got curious. I found a, a, a blog post from 2004 that says this happens when the USB device does not have a serial number. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it it goes and uh, you know treats it like it's something new. And basically be, it's not to be a pain, but to cover up the fact that this was a poorly designed system in the first place. Oh my God, you just explained a lot to me right now. I just learned why I have a, I always have a problem with a certain device I have. <laughs> yep. it says, yeah, it's, it's so strange. It says, it's so strange how this works. Things suck because they were already bad in shape in the first place, and it would not have been a problem if it had a serial number. And two, once you're in this bad state... The alternative sucks more. The USB stack is just trying to make the best of a bad situation. If you ever wondered that, especially if you have uh, like a USB hub that's got a ton of ports and you might be switching stuff out occasionally, this is why. Uh, Adam IO turns 1.0. This is interesting because I looked at what version I was on. It was like 0.221 or something. I'm like, whoa, I'm horribly out of date. But apparently that was the precursor to 1.0. Yeah. And I actually learned a bunch about Adam IO from this. I didn't realize that the uh, uh, GitHub founder wrote the first versions of Adam IO either. And it was a oh, side project okay. that just sat there for years. Yeah. I knew they were using it internally, but yeah, that was some additional insight there. Yeah. So if you want to learn a little bit about the history of Adam IO, um, the link in the show notes talks about, you know, how it got to be from a side project that sat in the back burner for a few years into something that uh, last year just kind of took off in beta format and now hits official 1.0 version today. Yeah, and what's interesting is the 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 editor itself is written in JavaScript, just like uh, like Visual Studio Code, um, which is uh, which is pretty cool. And then, uh, did you watch the video they have out there? No, I did not. Oh, I for anybody, I'd recommend watching the video on the page that we link to. Uh, but basically, they have like this uh, this hilarious 
you know, like if you, if you were trying to figure out what computers would look like in the year, like 2000, and you were living in like 1920, um, this is like that imagined, but it's, it's actually like a commercial for, for the Adam editor. And it is, it is really entertaining. I might, uh, I might take the audio from that and put that right after the show <laughs> so that people can hear that. It's pretty amusing, but you got to watch it too. Uh, Star Wars API. This was in- yep, uh, the best API ever. You having a problem, Jason? I don't know. Hold on. You sound good. Equipment reset there. I don't know. My audio just died for some reason. Right. It's back though. All right. The best API ever. <laughs> so uh, if you go to swappy, S-W-A-P-I.co, um, mm-hmm. you will find all about the Star Wars API. Um, you can, it's a restful API where you just get all sorts of information. Like you could do uh, swappy.co slash API slash people slash one. And it'll tell you all about Luke Skywalker. This is so um, awesome. <laughs> I was going to say, what are you, what are you going to build with this now, Matt? I think we can agree now that, that there is an API for literally everything you can think about on the web right now. So, yeah. And, and that actually kind of uh, leads us into the next uh, news item. So a lot of us uh, we've talked about on the show, we've talked about FizzBuzz and as an interviewing technique. Well, I, there's a website out there called FizzBuzzer.com, which is FizzBuzz as a surface, a service. So if you're looking to interview people, but you don't just want to give them FizzBuzz, it'll give them um, uh, interview challenges, uh, coding challenges for those um, candidates to actually do in during an interview. At first, I thought this was like an API I could call that says I could call it and it would return FizzBuzz <laughs> so that I could, you know, if somebody said, please do FizzBuzz. <laughs> I could just make that call and be like, done. Uh, so th- this is this is even cooler, though. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, alternative instead of coming up with your own challenges i mean the only disadvantage here is they can't use their own tools right so like if i'm used to working in a particular editor or whatever this i mean i have to just basically use this from the website right i guess it sort of levels the playing field but at the same time i don't get um i don't get to use you know whatever add-ins i normally use and that type of thing right yeah i would imagine not it looks like it's all in browser yeah but it's still it's it's still a cool idea uh let's see here 34 CSS puns. I, I had, I thought this was pretty funny. I don't think I got to the end of the list here. What, what were some of your favorites? The, um, the ninja one is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Color black visibility, hidden animation duration is set to like, you know, super, super low level. <laughs> yeah. These are, these are pretty clever. Ghost white opacity 0.1. <laughs> Mario dot mushroom scale to 200. 200%. Yeah. Autobots transform, <laughs> translate 3D. <laughs> Muscles display flex. It's just kind of cool things. It, it's a little bit funnier when you get to actually see like, you know, the full CSS notation, but uh Tower of Pisa font style italic. <laughs> oh man, these are these are hilarious. Oh, Titanic float none. <laughs> the last one, of course, is Chuck Norris perfect. Color badass. <laughs> oh nice. B-A-D-A-5-5. Nice. <laughs> Okay, uh, and then the last one here, Windows Phone Mobile Insider Preview Build uh, 10.149, which I think is newer than the desktop build, correct? Yes, so it's actually been kind of amazing. Uh, the desktop uh, releases have been slowing down, and the phone ones are picking up again now because uh, we got one not too long ago, and I, as we record this last night, I just got this one. Uh, and it comes with uh, some pretty substantial things. So if you're following along with the Windows Phone uh, builds, this one actually has Microsoft Edge with the Edge branding. Uh, the the URL bar on the bottom, a um, little bit more integration and polish to it. As a whole, the UI is a lot more refined. The fit and finish things are, are really getting there. Uh, okay. The animations have changed. Um, 
the Cortana's notebook is in its final stage for uh, this current build. Um, and this next one, I, I was actually missing, uh, it, but then I realized uh, on the 635 that I have, it doesn't have a flashlight, so therefore oh. it's not going to have the <laughs> flashlight icon. Right, right. Because that's the first thing I look for, and I forgot it didn't have that since it's only my dev device. Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, more changes compared to what the changes were on the on the previous update to it. So if you do have an extra device uh, laying around, this one is fairly stable and uh, pretty nice to use. You definitely see where some of those design, design decisions are, are, are heading, and it's looking pretty good. Maybe you can answer this for me, Carl. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent as far as Windows builds. But what I don't understand is there's the whole ring system. Yep. And... I thought originally the idea was that, you know, they make a new build and, you know, basically it goes out to a really small group of people that are actually in the operating system team and they're gathering telemetry. And basically if it is better than the previous one, then it will make it to the next ring and it's sort of rinse and repeat as you go through those rings. It's not better than the previous ring. So or previous build, it's a a minimum standard. So, so once it, so it, you could have seems, you could have a certain seems... build that just like is really awesome and stable and all that and the next one and the next one doesn't necessarily have to be better than that it could could it could introduce bugs and stuff but as long as it meets that threshold that's my okay. that's my understanding of it at okay. least okay it would just seemed logical to me like is this one you know is it greater than the previous build yes okay well then move it to the next ring and just keep keep going so i don't know it, it it's just interesting to see how these things come out and i wonder how that process is going to change over time as well i have no insight into that i was just curious okay well let's talk to matt because that's really why we're here so um you know <laughs> matt originally said that you know he's just a random developer from microsoft that built a cool viral site uh but you know so let's let's start with uh talking about that so you had you had created uh twins or not.net and there's probably a lot of people listening to the show that are also familiar with the viral site, you know, how old.net, how dash old.net. I know we've talked about it on the show before. Um, so can you explain what the sites are and, and how they were created? Right. I guess uh, it makes sense to, to tell a little bit about uh, what I do at Microsoft. So I work in a group yep. that we call the evangelism group that you guys know really well. And our job is to help driving adoption, right? It's helping developers to figure out the cool stuff we build and how to use it and unblock whatever issues they have. So so we are kind of customer advocates in, in many ways. And one of the key things my, my team does is building the uh, keynote demos for the build events. So, you know, we have build every year in San Francisco and my team, like one month before build, we work like crazy nonstop day and night weekends. So we get all those demos ready to be uh, showing in the in the keynote, and that's how I met the guys from Howl.net. That's how I met uh, Coron and the other guys because uh, we 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 got introduced to them and say, hey, these guys have this idea about building this this Howl.net website, and they're going to show this in the Joseph Sirosh's, uh, uh demo during build. And we kind of uh, sat together with them and, and and they explained us what the idea was, what the Oxford APIs were, but the, the, the whole point of it. And how old.net went viral, right? They, they did an awesome job there. Oh, went insane. It went crazy. I think we got 200 million photo uploads in just a couple of weeks or something like that. It was insane. Uh, yeah. Today, actually, if you go to those uh, website worth estimators, 
I think how old.net, which is I think now is what a month old, a couple of months old. It's it's mm-hmm. worth like a, something around ten million dollars, <laughs> right? It's re, it's ridiculous, and yeah. um, so that was really cool. And then after build, we had the the build tours. So myself and a bunch of guys from my team, we we travel over the world presenting kind of a summary what of what we presented during build. So I did that in Brazil, all over Europe, uh, uh, North America, uh, South Africa, Asia. We've been traveling like crazy. <clears throat> and during this trip, uh, 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 the last one I presented was in Czech Republic. And uh, we, my friends and I, we, we were discussing, hey, since this is the last one we're going to do together, then each one of us is going to a different country. We should do something special, right? We should do something different. And, and when we arrived in Czech Republic, uh, we went to the hotel and our rooms, they weren't available then. Uh, mm-hmm. So we had to sit in the lobby for a few hours. And that's where I say, hey, you know what, let's just build a site where we compare photos and tell if people look alike or not. And literally, I, I, it was done in four hours. I'm not joking. Like the, the source code is available on GitHub. You can tell like it's not well tested. It was really done very quickly. And the whole point was to show it is possible. A developer can do that. You can go from an idea to an actual thing in a few hours and have Azure running it and scaling up. Uh, it, the twins are not didn't go anywhere in terms of popularity like uh, <laughs> howo.net. I think in four days I got a million page views. There's nothing even remotely close to howo.net. But it got very popular, right? And and that's what we presented on the next day in Czech Republic. Uh, we showed people, hey, you can upload photos, and that's how the Oxford APIs work, and etc. Uh, so it was a really really fun experience. And the whole point of these sites is to show machine learning is a thing that a normal developer like me, who is not a data scientist, can use and do interesting things with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I to stress test this thing, so I tried, uh, I put in. Um, Elizabeth old, I, I just was using Bing, right? So this is pretty cool. You can use Bing to find the images, but I use like Elizabeth Olson and, and Ashley Olson, which they're sisters, but they're not twins. And it, it said that, um, you know, it said that they weren't twins, which was pretty cool. And then I put in, I searched for something like, um, uh, ugly Ashley Olson or something. Cause I, I just wanted to get like a bad picture. <laughs> and then I, I just put in like Ashley Olson and the pictures, they look totally different to me. And it said 100% confidence they're twin or that they're they are twins, um, even though it was the same person. That was kind of the test there, and I found that amazing. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was shockingly good because you know she's like facing a different direction. Uh, the color was completely different. It, it's 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 just amazing that they're actually able to look into the the key factors there and actually know that. So that sort of brings us into um, machine learning and specifically Azure machine learning. So do you, you know, which is kind of the, the foundational technology here. Do you, so do you want to explain what that is? Uh, sure. So, um, so those two sites, they use what we call the Oxford APIs and more specifically one API uh, that's, uh, the face API. There are more. And then we uh, actually, right now, I would love to start building, uh, examples of this other one. So people know that it's not just face recognition that we can do there. But mm-hmm. but the cool thing about those is that you don't have you don't have to know anything about machine learning at all. Those are REST APIs. I just send a photo, and the thing just returns uh, what I need to know about it. So I, I don't need to to know anything more than how to call a REST API. But then let's imagine there are other things you want to do that they they don't quite fit into one of those APIs, and that's where 
e use Azure Machine Learning. Machine Learning, uh, uh, the cool thing about um, our platform is, I think it's a thing that Azure does really well, is removing all the plumbing, right? I'm a developer. I don't want to go set up a cluster and install a bunch of software. So then I can upload some photos and do some training so I can do my machine learning thing and get some result out of it. And what machine learning in Azure does is, uh, I just say, give me a, 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 a experiment so I can work with it. And in a few seconds, I already have my environment set up and I can just drag and drop the algorithms I need and, and train the model and get the results I want. So it's really quick. It's really easy to assimilate. And again, you don't need to go down the deep levels of data science to, to use it. Like there's a lot that a normal developer can assimilate and make sense out of it and use it in an everyday uh, sort of scenarios. So it's a very nice environment. Even if your goal is to just learn the basics of machine learning, that's a perfect place to do it. It's so easy to do it. So you've mentioned that you don't have to be a data scientist, um, but how, do, how does it look like to a developer? Am I, am I writing code in my favorite language of choice or is there like a special environment that I have to have or use? Um, how, how does that look like and how does that work? Uh, you can go anywhere from not writing any code at all, uh, all the way to writing your custom R and Python scripts, depending on what you want to do. Uh, I can explain how I do it. So I have a problem. It always starts with I'm trying to solve a particular problem. I'm trying to do uh, facial recognition. I'm trying to uh, predict how much I'm going to sell the next quarter. I have a problem I need to solve. So then I go to Azure, I click at machine learning, and there is a gallery there. And the gallery has a bunch of pre-built experiments for all sorts of scenarios you can think about. So the first thing I try to do is find the one that closely relates to what kind of problem you're trying to solve. For example, I have a website that sells a bunch of products and I want to do product recommendation. Given that I know which users buy what, now, giving a new user is buying this thing, I should recommend these other things because probably that user will want those things as well. Well, so if I search in the, this gallery, I'm going to find things like a movie recommendation. It's not exactly what I'm doing, but it's almost the same. Like the, the difference between recommending a movie and recommending another product, it's, it's none really. All I need is the mm -hmm. same kind of data. So then I open that and there's a very nice description of how that experiment was built, what kind of data you need to give it to it, uh, how do you treat that data, uh, how you get the results out of it, and then how you turn that into a web service you can use from your application. And for many of those, it's all visual, right? You can just drag and drop blocks on the screen. And it's really like you're drawing, for those who, who used uh, things like uh, SSIS in the past or BStalk, it feels like an orchestration, it's very visual. And each one of those blocks represents uh, a task. It can be joining two data sets together. It may be training a model with a specific algorithm. It, it can be many things. So then you read about this model, you understand, okay, I, now I know how they did the movie recommendations thing, and now I know how to take that into the thing I need to do. So it, that, that's how I, in my mind, I work out finding what I need there. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about terminology so that we get some of these things out of the way. Um, so I've, I've been in there in the in the Azure designer. So like, can you help uh, help define like what what is an experiment, uh, trained model, and, and maybe some of the other terminology? Okay, so ex experiment is is 
uh, the the easier way to to relate that if we're talking to developers, think about your Visual Studio project, right? It's a, mm -hmm. you create a project to solve a particular problem or to do something. An experiment is your workspace where you're trying to solve a particular problem. You create an empty space there, and then you start dragging things and building your solution. That's that's what an experiment is. It's your empty uh, whiteboard where you start start drawing your your solution. Um, then a trained model. So the key principle here is uh, take a task, for example, facial recognition. Imagine if you try to write a C-sharp code that can take a photo and identify a face there. That's that's insanely difficult, right? How do you tell, looking at pixel by pixel, try right. to identify this is an eye, this is a mouth, this is a nose. There are those problems where writing conventional uh, uh, code is just too hard to, to, to do and solve those problems. What what machine learning does is you 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 feed it with a bunch of data that's already already has the solutions you're looking for. So I give it a bunch of faces and say, in these photos, these are the faces, this is where they are, this is where the mouth is, this is where the eyes are. And then you train that model so it learns how to do it by itself. So training means usually you take this bunch of data, you break into uh, two parts. One is the data you're going to use to train. And then the second part is the data you're going to use to validate if you really train the model, right? So you get, for example, 80% of your data you're going to use to train it. And then after you think your training is done and works, then you take a bunch of fresh data that you never used in that model before and see if the model is accurate and can really find, still locate what you want in that fresh data. So, okay. so that's the training so, model. So Right. And to know that it's accurate, I mean, you need to know like the answers to previous questions, right? Yeah. So that's one way of the, there are different uh, machine learning uh, approaches uh, in the supervised okay. training, what called supervised training. That's when you already know the answers for a bunch of those. So it's easier to yeah. train. There are also other far more difficult scenarios where there's nothing. All you have is the raw data without classification, without anything. And you still need to figure out stuff out of it. Okay. Right. And there is also, so we're talking about a classification here. That's a big group that we call classification. There is also regression. Regression is, is more about, I need to predict specific numbers. So I need to detect a trend. So I need to, for example, uh, predict if the global warming is getting worse or getting better in terms of numbers, or if they're going to sell more next quarter or sell less. And so, so that's about numbers, not about categories. So there's a whole bunch of algorithms focused on regression for this sort of thing. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. 
But uh, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month, download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. Yeah, so what kinds of data or data sources can Azure ML work with? Um, is it kind of limited, or can I throw nearly anything that I have at it? Uh, it's all about how you can translate that data into numbers, right? By the end of the day, all of this works because we have a bunch of numbers that you can feed into this and train it. So if you take, for example, images, I have a bunch of uh, PNG or uh, JPEGs. I need to convert that into something that machine learning can, can make sense out of that. So for example, if you have a JPEG image, the first thing you need to do is to decompress it to a point where you have the red, green, and blue values for every pixel in that image. That's step one. And okay. then, okay. right? And, and then out of the next steps will depend a lot on what you're trying to find in that image. For example, one thing you can do is turn that into grayscale because maybe colors are just noise there. Like if I'm trying to identify a face, for example, I can pretty much do that with grayscale, and that's far less information you need to deal with than just a bunch of colors. That one, that's one thing. Or in some cases, just even black and white, uh, depending on, on what I want to find out. Then uh, there are lots of very cool, interesting ways you can pre-process that image. For example, you can uh, take chunks, blocks out of it uh, to identify uh, areas of the image, or there are algorithms for detecting edges, right? What are the edges within that image so I can draw? It's very common if I have a, a photo taken from a satellite and I need to find roads. So you, you just look for edges. You don't need machine learning to do that first step. But then by doing those things, you're making the machine learning job so much easier because you're already removing a lot of noise and kind of hinting the machine learning model, this is probably the information you need to figure out what I want you to figure out, right? So just like you can do that with images, you can do that with pretty much anything. So text, for example, I want to build a model for detecting if I'm receiving spam in my email. So I need to convert that email data into some kind of numbers that machine learning can take. So there's a lot of stuff you can do there. You can, for example, remove special characters. There's just noise in that email, uh, punctuation. You may or may not want to add some metadata about who sent the email, what, when the email was sent, what day of the week or whatever, whatever is relevant for your spam detection model. And then you need to take all those chunks of text and turn them into hashes because those would be the, the things that machine learning can assimilate is just numbers. Uh, so those are very common tasks. Like what I'm telling you here is what I've learned by just looking at those models and seeing how people do it. It's, it, it's by the end of the day, we need to, to feed the model with numbers and, and then train based on those numbers. So the answer to our question is pretty much anything. I can feed it from an Azure blob storage. I can feed, feed it from a, a SQL database, from Hadoop. I can feed it from a URL, from a web service. Uh, wherever the data comes from, as long as I can translate into whatever the machine learning can understand, you can virtually feed it with anything. That was really insightful. So 
like you said, with the, with the images, I mean, I might feed it like black and white images. I might have some kind of contrast map, something like that. I'm thinking back to, uh, it was a, it was a few episodes ago. We had talked about, um, recognizing QR codes. Right. And the way you end up doing that is I, I always thought that that was sort of an insurmountable problem. And I had no idea how people actually did that, but they basically take this shortcut where they're looking for a certain level of contrast to start. And once it sort of passes that rule, then they're looking for the next thing and the next thing. And, and let's say you were doing machine learning on QR codes. I mean, you, you wouldn't need the color information. You're really trying to boil it down to the actual data that's there. So you, so you can sort of progressively extract the data out of that and, and figure it out. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty neat how, how that works. I, I never, never really thought about that. I didn't realize that the machine learning didn't just go off of, you know, I didn't really understand how it would just take in a JPEG and get that. So that was really insightful. Yeah. And that's, I think experiment is a great name because there is a lot of experimentation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the thing that yeah. I used to be very scared about this, uh, and I like to challenge myself in areas that I, they are not my comfort zone. And that's one of the main reasons why I jump into this thing. And when you talk with data scientists and I ask them, like, so given this problem, what's the right algorithm I should be using to solve it? And the answer is, I love the answer because they usually say, well, try a bunch of them and see which one works the best. And I think it's a so such an honest answer, right? It's sometimes you 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 only know by trying different things and seeing which right. one works best. And that's a lot of what they do. Uh, it's it's experimenting. Okay, so if I have this huge data set um, that might be gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes, like how how large can the data be when I'm working with Azure ML? Or or maybe the more important question is, um, you know, like what is sort of an ideal size to work with? And if it's, if it's a huge data set is, is it going to be really slow whenever I'm working with that data? Uh, yes. So today Azure machine learning, I believe the current limit is 10 gigabytes, uh, okay. for a given model. And you have to be aware that 10 gigabytes is of data that's ready to be processed. So if I feed a bunch of JPEG images, I still need to decompress them first, right? And then it comes the importance of maybe I need to resize these images, maybe I need to remove additional uh, unnecessary information. So the the final amount of data is still manageable. And But by the end of the day, an experiment will be limited to 10 gigabytes. Now, let's say you have a terabytes of data. It doesn't mean you have to train the entire data set in machine learning. Maybe training 10 gigs of it will give you enough enough uh, training data that will let you work with all the gigabytes of data later on. Uh, so, so we need to separate the training part with the actual uh, using the trained model later, right? For training, we, we are working with 10 gigabytes of data. That's our limit. Once mm-hmm. my model is trained and is ready, now I can just feed with additional data and we'll just know how to uh, answer that new fresh data. I turn that into a web service and that becomes just a web service I can keep calling uh, literally forever. I, I just can keep using it and sending new fresh data and you keep answering me. So for that, there is no, virtually no limit. It's just a production website that I, I, I manage on Azure. Okay, really cool. I have a further question on that. So how, how do you turn that into a web service? And then I guess a follow-up question with that is, if you want to further train that, do you have to start from scratch or can you kind of take where you started from there and and add additional training to it? Uh, so when you look at... Uh, uh and I would suggest everybody to 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 go to azure.com, click at machine learning, 
and open one of those uh, experiments just to visualize what I'm talking about. But basically, uh, it's all about data flows there. You draw, you literally draw visually how the data goes from where to where to where. So um, once I, let's say, for example, I have a bunch of data uh, in an Azure blob storage and I use it to train my model. So I have a little box there saying, read data from Azure Blob Storage. That's where my model starts. There's a little box there with an arrow saying, get this data from the Blob Storage and feed into the model and train it and do whatever. After I'm done with it, after I'm done with the training and I want to publish this into a web service, all I'm actually effectively doing there is replacing that input which is a blob storage, uh, blob storage with a web service input, right? So I replaced that box with another one saying, now when I turn this into a web service, data comes from this box instead. And now I'm feeding directly into my trained model. I'm not feeding to the whole bunch of boxes that will take the data, train it, and spit it out. Uh, so that's that's one of the things you can do. Then you publish that as a web service and it becomes a REST API that's calling the same series of boxes at your trained model and spitting the result. You can also uh, retrain the model. So there are like there are some examples online where, um, for example, uh, even even the Oxford APIs, if you take the face APIs, for example, one thing is comparing two faces, right? Upload two photos and ask it. Uh, are they, do these two faces look alike? Yes or no? Oh yeah, they do. The other thing would be I, I give, I, I pre-upload a series of faces and I give each one of them an identity. And now when I upload a new face, I want it to tell which one of those guys that face belongs to. So now, for example, I, I build an application uh, that's my home automation system. And I upload the photo of my wife, myself, my family, right? And now I teach the system that whenever someone appears in front of the camera, it will try to spot which person from that database that that photo belongs to. So you're now uh, uh, teaching it about all those new faces and who they are. So you can build a model such as that uh, you keep training it. There is room for that as well. Oh, really cool. Uh, one of the, the changes, so uh, after we we published the twins or not.net, uh, the guys from the Oxford APIs, they offered to support and take care of that website and keep evolving it, which was great because I honestly, I can't, there's absolutely no way I could keep working it. So they just published a new version and now they are managing the twins or not. Uh, and that new version. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that new version is pretty cool because one of the things they did is after you upload two photos, let's say the result is not what you expected. You uploaded two photos of yourself and the things say, no, that's not the same person. You have the option to say, let me teach your model that these two photos are indeed the same guy. So they, they give you the option at the end of it if you're okay with it, only if you're okay with it, to keep those photos and keep training our model so our model gets smarter and smarter in terms of identifying photos. I think that's pretty cool. Cool. Um, is there a way that I can run my own code in, in Azure ML? I know that there's some like pre-can steps there, but uh, I think you mentioned like R and Python. Is that how I would end up doing that? That's pretty much it. So today uh, you... I mentioned there's a bunch of boxes there. There are two boxes. One is execute Python script and the other one is execute R script. And that's, uh, it, it's pretty much a free text 
sort of box where you can put whatever you want in there. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, libraries, open source libraries that we already offer inside uh, uh, Azure Machine Learning. So you don't have to go build everything from zero. But if you have something very specific, that's how you, you can do it. You can just uh, execute those scripts. Uh, the other thing you can do is calling external web services, right? So let's say as part of your flow, you need to call another web service, get some data and bring back. You can do that as well. Uh, well, so that pretty much lets you bring in anything. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Then okay. yeah, it becomes a matter of, I mean, you have to consider like, if you're calling an external web service as part of your training model, you have to think, well, how long is it going to take, right? How much data we're talking about? Is that going to slow down the whole training? So, but, but it's all doable. Yeah. So, you know, if I have my data and I kind of, you mentioned it's easy to just kind of uh, swap out these algorithms to experiment with them. Um, I'm looking at the gallery here. There's quite a few of them here that I have no idea what they do. Yeah, they're kind of confusing names to us. I mean, some of them make sense because there's something like customer churn predictor and anomaly detection. You know, that makes sense to me. Uh, I know some of these are a little bit more math based, but I don't really know what a binomial distribution quantile calculator <laughs> API is. Why not? Come on, Carl. Come on. That's Come like, on. Everybody that's like computer that. science 101. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. And uh, it's, it's, we are living this very unique moment because to this date, machine learning was this very uh, niche area that just a bunch of data scientists could understand and talk about it. And now we are in this tipping point where suddenly those things become accessible to us normal guys who can just write code and use this stuff. And so what what you're telling there, and I, I totally feel your pain there, it's the thing I feel, I feel as well. It's, uh, it's kind of this schizophrenic moment where some of those examples are focused on general developer audience. And others are focused on very specific researchers sort of audience. And we're talking to both. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do, and I kind of put in this hat in my team and say, I'm going to be the guy who's going to be talking to developer audiences and try to translate those things uh, as I learn, because I'm learning as I go as well. So to me, it's a fascinating challenge to, to try to simulate those things. And translating terms that every developer like me can also understand. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, But for a long, long time, you see those two different kinds of models there. Those that were written to a normal developer or those who were written in terms that only a data scientist can figure out. But one cool thing about Azure Machine Learning is when you drag those, those um, algorithms to the screen, each one of them uh, has a quick help on the bottom right. And if you click at the quick help, there is an explanation of what the thing does in, in very simple terms. It says, well, this thing does classification. This thing does this, this, and that. And we, we also did, uh, uh, there's a very cool page. We can publish it later, uh, put a link or something uh, that shows how do you go from figuring out from a problem? How do we figure out what's the right algorithm? To, what's the right little box? What's the right algorithm to use to solve that problem? So it's a very cool thing because it goes with some basic questions like, are you trying to predict the future or not? Are you trying to guess a number or just trying to put things in the right categories? Uh, so it keeps us driving you with those questions until you say, well, you probably need a classification algorithm. Oh, you probably need a regression algorithm. So it, it helps you to navigate this complexity a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, at work, I have a um, 
we were working on something that has a, a, a lot of data behind it. And it would really be nice uh, to be able to use some uh, machine learning in order to, you know, more properly predict if uh, a user is going to do certain things or not. And and I, I know all the technologies here at my fingertips, but it's as easy as it is, easy as it is, it's still kind of overwhelming once you just look at these. So that's really cool. And that's a cool idea, Carl. What what you just said there, you said to figure out what the user is going to do. Yeah. So imagine your your application as you're sort of navigating through. It's looking at their, you know, there's there's things like prefetching and precaching, like in a browser where it it just starts loading all the links that you could possibly click on. But yeah, imagine if your application is actually trying to guess what they're going to do next and is like pre-computing that 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 would be really cool. It, it would be. Well, so you know, uh, sorry, just one one interesting thing about what you say, like. Mm-hmm. You you say we have some data here that we could be using to teach our machine learning. And that's that's the key there. Like every developer has some data somewhere, some historical database, some line of business data, and all those things are gold mines that to this date they are mostly unexplored. Nobody did anything out of just writing some normal reports right. out of it. So imagine the kind of stuff that will come out where people start to think exactly what you just did there. Say, well, maybe I could figure stuff I never thought I could before with the data I already have here, sitting here waiting for me to just mine it. And that's exactly the point. All right. Now, I just want to step back, change pace here and kind of talk about in your project, you said you use projectoxford.ai. Yep. And... uh, and uh, for for what it looks like to me, you know, based upon our conversation here, is you know it there's all this uh, existing technology with Azure ML, and it's kind of you know a wrapper around there to uh, help model these speech and vision interactions a little bit better. Um, is that accurate? And uh, you know, is, is that you know the goal of how you chose to use that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the point of the Oxford APIs is they are an abstraction layer on top of general machine learning, right? For certain tasks, they are so common. Like it's so likely that other people will need those things, like speech recognition, facial recognition, vision, language understanding, and so on. Those things are so common that it will be. Uh, unrealistic to ask every developer to build their own machine model to do those things. So why not just going one step further and offering these things as simple REST APIs you can just call and just make sense out of it. And so far, what we did with those two sites was showing the face APIs. Uh, You have, for example, computer vision APIs. I can upload any photo. And what the computer vision API will do, among other things, is trying to spot objects in that photo. So for example, I see a dog, I see a drink, I see food, I see a train station, I see a crowd. It's And it's pretty accurate. It can do that fairly well. So imagine the things you can do out of it. Like uh, there was a friend of mine building a little diet uh, focused mobile application. So he wanted to take photos of, uh, make a, uh, like a, a history of what you eat every day. And But he wanted to control that when people take a photo from their phones, it's actually a photo of the food and not something else. So this, this API can just say, hey, hang on, your photo doesn't seem to be anything that's... Uh, it doesn't look like food. Right? <laughs> well, that could be insulting too. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can do other things like finding the accent color in a photo or finding the background color in a photo or automatically cropping the photo. So it's all, all those... Very common things. Of course, people will need those things. And that's why the Oxford API does for you. 
And what's cool about that, you can actually go out to projectoxford.ai and you can upload a photo and actually use those things uh, right from that website, which is really cool. You can explore it, upload a photo. You can upload a photo of some food and it'll tell you if it's that. It also has some sample images out there. So that's that's pretty cool that you can, you know, just like the layperson can go out there and, and, and try this thing out before they even start developing with it. That's a thing we're doing across Microsoft in general. So Office 365 is doing the same. We have the sandbox documentation. We are learning that developers... Just reading an API documentation is not enough. Like I, I, as a developer, I want to play with it first before I want to see if it really works the way the documentation is telling me works. So the experimentation is very important. So uh, moving forward, Microsoft as a whole, uh, we are going to do more and more of this kind of interactive documentation that you can play with it and figure out how the APIs work. Awesome. Um Going back to you, are, is there anything else that you've been working on? Any interesting public projects that you have, or is just this been uh, the cream of your crop so far? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing a lot of stuff. So my next crazy project is called Azure Lens. So if you go to www.azurelens.net, it's kind of a a tool for visualizing the architecture of uh, Azure hosted solution in 3D using Babylon JS. And I'm about to open source this. I'm just uh, waiting for approval from our MIT policy folks at Microsoft so I can open source it and, and ask for a contribution. I want more people to help me building it. Is this using the ARM templates? Uh, so my goal is, yes, is to use ARM templates. The idea is you're going to draw, like imagine you have Surface Hub, right? Or any touch screen. You're going to just draw things in this 3D environment. Like I, I, draw, I drag a VM and then a website and draw some errors there. And then I want to convert that into an actual solution in Azure and monitor it. I want to see, for example, if a VM is running hot on CPU, I want to see that box turning red or something and tell me something is wrong there. So I want to build this interactive, touch-friendly experience that works on any device. That's that's my dream <laughs> to, that I want to make this it is, true. The reason, the reason I ask, this is super interesting because I, I started prototyping something that was basically the same thing. Oh, great. Let's uh, work together then. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't trying to do it in 3D though. And I, mine was specifically based on the ARM templates because ARM templates in Azure are JSON. And so you, it's easy to parse in JavaScript. There's really not parsing. You're turning into an object model. Right. And I was building uh, basically a, a diagram so you could, you could edit the ARM templates. Um, so this is really interesting. This, maybe we could sort of merge those things together or figure out how they fit together. This, this is pretty cool, though. That's, I didn't think to do great. it in 3D. Well, so I, I've never used Babylon JS. Yeah, it looks I wanted cool. to make it both 2D and 3D. I think 3D gives you the wow effect, and 2D gives you the practical <laughs> kind of let's get yeah. it done sort of, sort of thing. So I think it makes it's funny being able to fly around in Azure architecture. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun. This would make a great demo. I mean, this is just kind of fun yeah. to play around with, zoom in and out, and like you said, fly around. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that, that 3D part is already working. What's not there yet is uh, the integration with Azure. So today is a complete offline experience. You just see what's in there. Uh, actually, the howold.net is already described there, the backend architecture of how that works. It's there right now. You can already browse it in 3D and see what, what each box does. Uh, what I want to do now is, is connect that with Azure via ARM and, and make it work. Okay, pretty cool. This is I just I just love playing around in this 3D space. Um, <laughs> so, anything else you wanted to mention before we uh, before we close out the episode? No, I think uh, if people want to know more Cover about well. uh, Oxford API and Azure Machine Learning, uh, feel free to reach out to me. You have my Twitter there. Just uh, 
I'm, I'm happy to help as a developer, not as a data scientist. I'm, I'm happy to try to answer questions and help people around. Okay, really cool. Uh, let's see, our Azure pick of the week. Um, so this is a pretty quick one, but there are new Azure billing APIs available. And actually, Matt, this might work good with your project <laughs> because you could actually monitor the billing information based on the consumption of um, you know what's used within that architecture that you deploy. So this lets you, yeah, this lets you pull out the billing information. And what's really cool about this is since it's an API, there've actually been a couple companies that have already integrated with this that help you break down your consumption and understand what's going on in your Azure application. So if, that, if that's something you're looking for, we will have a link to that in the show notes. And very, Carl, what, that's a, what was that? Go ahead, Matt. That's a very important thing because uh, very yeah, a lot common, of people were asking. Yeah, especially the larger companies, the large customers, yep. they want to break this down into more detailed reports. So now if you go, you can do whatever you want with those APIs. Yep. You could put that into machine learning and you could figure out, uh, you know, who's costing you the most money. Ah, yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway, so Carl, what do we got for the app of the week? Uh, I I kind of uh, f- found that uh, the How Old app on Windows Phone. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. Is that published by Microsoft? Oh, yeah, yes, it's, it's published by Microsoft Online. So you can uh, upload a, fi- a picture from your camera roll and it, it'll do all the stuff that uh, How Old.net will. That's pretty cool. So did, nice. I wonder, do you think this is just the website wrapped with some some extra goodness for for getting the pictures into there? If I recall, if I recall correctly, I think they used it. We have this thing called web application template. Yep. And that's a tool exactly to help you with that process of taking a website and turning that into a cross-platform application. Yep. Very cool. And then Matt, there's a game that we play on here that I think you're familiar with. I need you to give me a number between one and four. Okay, let's say three. Three, okay. Would you rather be at a baseball game and try to catch a foul ball with a soup can or try and catch a foul ball with a shirt sleeve? Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I would fail in both cases badly. <laughs> I, 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 this is the part in the show where the guests are like, why did I come on here? <laughs> That's why it's at the nuts. end. Yeah. I would, so you yeah. So no answer or what do you, what do you uh, I think the shirt would be less harmful and less risky to hurt somebody else trying to do it. So probably that. Yeah, would. there you go. I don't think, um, I don't think a, a, will a ball even fit in a soup can? It seems like a horrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> okay, Carl, pick a number between one and four. Uh, one. One. Would you rather be a vampire or a werewolf? That one's simple. Vampire. And there you go. You just got, yeah, because there's really, <laughs> so, so if you pick vampire, do werewolves exist? <laughs> Not in my world. <laughs> well, that's pretty handy then. I, I would agree with that one then. Uh, okay, what do we got here? So Matt, uh, you mentioned uh, Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? So it's Matt Veloso. It's Matt one T M A T, and Veloso is V like in Victor E double L O S O. So Matt Veloso, um, you you can easily find me there. Perfect. And then uh, Carl was actually mentioned before the show. If you search for your name. Um, all of your information is very neatly displayed within the search engine, which is pretty cool. Let's, like the top let, five or six hits are, are all of your stuff. Let's think for a moment to also work all the guys over being do. I love them. Thank you very much. And, and, and how did they do that? <laughs> Machine learning. Ah, right? there you go. Yeah. And actually, um, they, I, I know that what they end up doing too, is they, as people click on things and, and, you know, any information they get actually gets fed right back into their machine learning model. 
and uh, helps helps improve the search results. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Very and a lot of what we see in the Oxford APIs and machine learning, there is a lot there that is thanks to the Bing guys as well. Yeah, because that's a nice big data set that they have to work with. <laughs> right. Uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And Matt, thanks again so much for coming on the show. This is uh, my best understanding of, of machine learning and uh, definitely learned a few things. So thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 